Good evening. Uh, the second Bible reading is from page 1029. It's Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 30. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? the man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is God's word. Well, friends, uh, there is an outline for the talk tonight, so if you need to get one, feel free to grab one. That will help you follow along in this passage. Do keep your Bibles open. We make our way through this. We will make our way through this whole passage. And let's uh, pray that hopefully my explanation of this text won't be as confusing about cricket in and out, uh, but we need God's help. So let's, let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we will understand what this text is about, what it means to belong to the kingdom, what it is that keeps us out of the kingdom. So we pray, Lord, that you'll be uh, speaking to us, speaking to us, our hearts, so that it will be clear to us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you head out this door on my right into the courtyard and then through the childproof gate into the church's car park, you know what you'll see there? You'll see this line, a very special line that marks off a very special concrete space. Very special. 
Now, in case you don't know what that space is about, you look up and there's a sign. No parking. Minister only. So what do you think that means? It means that if you're a minister, you can park there. If you're not, you don't. Now, now I'm not having a go at you or anyone. <laughs> but it's something we do as people, don't we? we? We mark out lines. We draw lines and we say, that's mine. That space in there is mine. We mark it off. We do it all the time. Even as kids, when I was a child, two younger brothers, I'm always bigger, always tougher, and still am. But when we were <laughs> children sitting in the back seat of the car, we would say, this is the line. Don't you dare cross. You cross, I'll punch you. Uh, not that I did that, but, you know, I had authority and power, so they knew. We do that as adults as well, don't we? Building surveyors, what do they do? They go around, they mark out the land, and that's, that's your space, that's your land, that's your, your property. And so we mark it, this side of the fence is mine, that side of the fence is yours. And so if your lemon tree grows and the lemon hangs over my side of the fence, the lemons are mine. Right? We do that as adults. What about on a global level? We do that as well, don't we? We, we mark out countries and, and what's your country, what's my country. In fact, a lot of wars have been fought over just to draw that line. And so this side of the line, that's Italy, that side, that's, that's Switzerland. This side of the, the line, that's USA, that side's Mexico. And in case you don't know, there may be a war, depends who pays for it. But anyway, this side of the line, East Germany, that side of the line, West Germany. We, we do that, don't we? We mark off a line, we draw lines and we say, that's mine. We also do this with people, don't we? Not just things, not just property. We, we draw lines around people and say, these people belong, those people don't. Now, I grew up in the 80s. I went to school in the 80s, and I know for many of you, you were not even born in the 80s. That is ridiculous. But anyway, I grew up <laughs> in primary school in the 80s, and it was a different world in the 80s. In my primary school, there were literally only a handful of Asians. And if you, have, if you don't see, I was one of those Asians. <laughs> what happened in school was that a line was drawn. These are the people that belong. These are the people that don't belong. These are the people that deserve to be here. These are the people that don't deserve to be here. And, and I had a really good friend. I remember in primary school, in year two, year three, a really big friend perhaps the biggest guy in the class. And so any time anyone will pick on this small Asian kid, my friend, he will go up to the guy and say, don't you touch him, leave him alone. I'm from England. You see what he was saying? He's saying, I belong. And so I do as well. But tonight we're not reflecting on my childhood. It's not my aim to get your sympathies and your tears and any of that. And, and tonight we're not trying to scheme as well. How are we going to get into John's car park? But tonight we're going to be thinking about something far more important. Far more important than that. And that is, where does God draw the line? In this world, six, seven billion people, where does God draw the line? Around whom does God draw the line and say, you're mine. They are not, you are mine. And so let's have a look at this passage. Firstly, what we see here is, is the line that God draws around those who are in the kingdom. Those who are in the kingdom. And what we see here should in fact shock us just as it did the disciples. Have a look at verse 13. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. 
And what did the disciples do? They're thinking, Jesus is far too important for you little snotty-nosed rascals. You see, Jesus is too important to bother with you. You see, in that society, in that world, children were, were, were cherished, but they were unimportant members of society. Their place in society was just to learn, be respectful, and listen. In fact, even in our culture, in an Australian culture, in high society, in a, another generation, the place of children was to be seen but not heard. Have you heard that before? To be seen but not heard. Even in my family today, when our extended family gets together, over 40 of us, there's a special table for the seniors, those who are more important. The kids, the little ones, they sit at a different table. They're, they're less important, but they don't really care. They think that's more fun than being with the adults anyway. And so that was the view of children, not so important. They're weak and powerless. What did the disciples do? Look at verse 13. The, the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And so what does Jesus do now? He now teaches a very important lesson. He shows them where God draws the line. They drew their line. Now he shows them where God draws his line. They're thinking those who are important, those who are powerful, those who are wealthy are those who belong. That's where God draws the line. But Jesus flips it around. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, what do you think Jesus meant by that? Often people think that this verse refers to children being innocent. And so you need to be innocent like a child to get into heaven. You need to be innocent like a child to belong to the kingdom of God. But let me say to you, you show me an innocent child and I'll show you a hairless monkey. They don't exist. That's what I mean. You see, not that children are evil, outright, malicious, mass murderers, but children will do evil things without even being taught. I've got three children. I've seen it. They will lie without being taught to lie. They will be selfish without being taught to be selfish. They'll be disrespectful without being taught to be disrespectful. They will be greedy without being taught to be greedy. You see, those of us with children, we only know this too well. And so if here Jesus does not mean the innocence of children, what is it about children that Jesus is teaching about? And what do you think is distinctive about children? Well, what's distinctive about children is not their innocence or their cuteness. I mean, some adults are cute, some of you guys are pretty cute, or girls. But what is distinctive about children is their humble, complete humble dependence. And so what Jesus is saying here, God draws a line this way. Not the way you think, disciples. God draws a line this way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who utterly, completely, absolutely depend on God. They are the ones who belong. They're the powerless ones. They're the weak ones. They've got nothing to offer. They've got nothing to prove. They've got nothing to contribute at all. But that is the attitude around those whom God draws his line and says, you're mine. You're mine and they are not. And that's what happened in this passage. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus receives them and blesses them. So now, 
though they are the ones who are in the kingdom what about those out the kingdom who are those outside the kingdom well this next story shows us exactly what you can do to keep yourself out have a look at verse 16 now a man came to jesus and asked teacher what good thing must i do to get eternal life now already here you should notice the difference of attitude between this man and the children he came with this thinking what must i do what must i contribute and how did jesus respond verse 17 what he asked me about what is good there is only one who is good if you want to enter life obey the commandments and so the man's question about doing good jesus points to the one who is good he's actually pointing to himself because he answers that question and he says obey the commandments and then verse 18 he's confused which one jesus said do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not give false testimony honor your father and mother love your neighbor as yourself now at this point you might start to feel for this man i mean he, he just wanted to do what was right and good he, he wanted eternal life but then he goes on to say well all this i have kept verse 20 what do i still lack you must notice that the attitude is about what i can do what is it i lack now well he jesus does something spectacular jesus exposes his heart shows him that he hasn't really been keeping all the commandments he, jesus flushes out his idolatry he, he flushes out his deep problem the deep problem of his covetous heart and so jesus says to him verse 21 if you want to be perfect go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me now what jesus was asking there to many of us to our ears it might, might sound like such a difficult task but if you think about it jesus was giving him a very clear and simple option only two options in fact possessions here treasures in heaven what do you choose security here security in the age to come what do you choose money or life and so think about that what would you choose what would you do just say you you're out at doncaster shopping center you've just watched a movie it's late at night you walk back to your car alone some guy comes up behind you with a knife and he says to you your money or your life your money or your life you're frozen you're thinking wait just give me some time it's hard to decide money life don't pressure me just wait money life i mean it should be an easy obvious option wasn't it? it should be an easy obvious choice of course you would go with life of course you would go with treasures in heaven of course you would go and follow christ but what did the man do well look at verse 22 when the young man heard this he went away sad because he had great wealth you see it's only at this point in the story that we find out that he was a wealthy man we're not meant to know that yet we just know it because it's the little title but we we're not meant to know that but jesus did jesus saw his heart jesus flushed out his idolatry you see he clung on to the things of this world so tightly he grips onto us so tightly that, that he can't see that they were the things that were keeping him from the kingdom of god 
And just like the psalm we read, that first reading, and what a foolish man that is to cling on to worthless things. You, you remember that psalm? What would happen? Just say you do accumulate all that wealth and possessions. So what? You die, you decay anyway, and you leave your wealth to someone else. And worse than that, you perish like the beast. And so who are those who are outside the kingdom? Well, it's those who come to God like the rich man and not like the child. Self-righteous rather than humble. Self-dependent rather than completely dependent. Self-confident rather than complete surrender. What I do rather than what you have done. And so God draws a line. This is the line. You disciples, you got it wrong. This is the line. These are the people who remain outside. Now, having heard all of this from Jesus, it would have been a huge shock to the disciples. A big shock. But what Jesus goes on to say now, it's an even greater shock to them. You see, they were thinking, the, the people who should be getting to the kingdom of God were the wealthy, were the powerful. They were wealthy and powerful because they've been blessed by God. So if anyone can get into the kingdom of God, it is those people. But Jesus now says it is the complete opposite. Look at verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a clear illustration, isn't it? There is no way you can squeeze a 600-kilogram camel through a hole that is barely one millimetre wide. I mean, for my fat fingers to try to thread a little thread th through an eye of a needle, it's difficult enough. Imagine a camel. The illustration is clear. It's meant to show us that it is impossible. So there is no way a rich man who is self-confident, there is no way a rich man who is self-dependent, there is no way a rich man who is self-righteous can ever squeeze into heaven. And so verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? If it's so difficult, if it's impossible, who can be saved? We've got great Christians in our past history. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Billy Graham. As good and as great they were as Christians, none of them could save themselves. It is impossible for any man, any woman to save themselves. And so that's what Jesus makes clear now. Verse 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It is God who can save, not you. God draws the line. God brings you over. God does all that, not you. And God will find a way to bring broken human beings with hard hearts and evil deeds into his kingdom. It is up to God to do that. And now one of the disciples, Peter, he was a little concerned. Well, are we then among one of those? We followed you, Jesus. The rich man did it, but we did. And so he asked, we have left everything to follow you. Verse 27, what then will there be for us? Now Jesus shows them, all that you have done, disciples, forsaking your securities in this world to follow me, all of that will be worthwhile. Look at verses 28 to 29. 
Jesus says, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, that is, the, the new creation, when the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself, sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is making clear, this is worthwhile. You've left your jobs, you've left your families to follow me. It will be worthwhile because in the new creation, you will join with me in judging the people of God. And then we read more, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So you see what Jesus makes clear there. The call to discipleship is costly. Take, for example, John Stott. We spoke a bit about him last week. He was a man who remained single, lived 90 years, remained single for the kingdom of God. What cost was there to him in remaining single? It meant no wife, no children of his own. How did God reward him? What did God do? Was it worthwhile? Was he really lonely? Well, look at what he said. He said, Although I have no children of my own, I have hundreds of adopted nephews and nieces all over the world who call me Uncle John. I cherish these affectionate relationships. Do you see what coming into the kingdom means? Following Jesus, do you see what that means? I mean, biologically, I've got two younger brothers. But in the spirit, in Christ, in the family of God, you are my brothers and sisters. It's a more than a hundredfold, isn't it? And especially when Muslims, when they come to be Christians, when they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they choose Christ first, many of them are often disowned by their families. What did God do? What does God do in exchange for their cost? for their sacrifice. Well, they then belong to the worldwide family of God. They then have God as their father. They get eternal life. Man, have you ever wondered how wonderful it is, this thought? As a Christian, you can be anywhere in the world, in Bhutan, anywhere in the world. If you go to a local church where Christ is Lord and Savior, you'll be amongst brothers and sisters. Do you see the joy the glory there is for those who follow. And so Jesus promises, verse 29 again, anyone who has left for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And so do you see what Jesus has done in this passage? Who are those who are in? Who are those who are out? Well, Jesus turns it all upside down. It's not the rich man, but the child. It's not the self-righteous, but the humble. It's not the self-confident, but the completely dependent. It's not the dependent, but the one who surrenders, who is self-dependent, who surrenders to Christ. And so Jesus, in a sense, sums it up now, this passage in this last verse. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. God has drawn the line. It should be clear to us. It should be clear to us whether you're in or you're out. And so let me ask you this. Where do you think you stand? Which side of the line do you think you stand? Do you think you're inside the kingdom? Or do you think you're outside the kingdom? You see, with God, you're either in or you're out. 
It's not confusing. You either belong or you don't. Now, I suspect that most of you here tonight would say, well, I'm on the inside. I'm a Christian. I'm in the kingdom. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm in. And I would say, well, in the kindness and mercy of God, that would be true for many of us. I don't know exactly, but that would be true for many of us, and it should be. We are the Church of Christ. But I do wonder this. I do wonder whether there are some here tonight who think you're in. But in reality, in God's eyes, you're in fact out. And so you've deluded yourself. You think you're in. But in God's eyes, you're in fact out. And so for all of us tonight, I'd like us to do a little self-assessment. And that is this. What are your prayers like? What are your prayers like? You see, your, your prayers reflect your deepest longings, the deepest longings of your heart. And so, assess yourself. Do your prayers reflect more of the humble, dependent faith of the child or the longings, the desires, the dreams, the aspirations of the rich man? Ask yourself that question. What's the shape of your prayers? Consider your last prayer. What's the nature of your prayers to God? Is it always this? Heavenly Father, please help me do well in my upcoming exams. With my assessments, please help me to excel. Or dear God, please help me to do well in the interview. Please grant me a good job. Please help me to achieve. Please give me success. And then you know what we do after that? We Christianize it. We say all that and then we say, for your glory. Give me success. For your glory, of course, but give me success. For your glory, and that makes it all all right. I mean, such prayers, I think, exposes our idolatry. It flushes out the deepest longings of our heart. But we justify it. Give me success, God. For your glory, of course, but give me success. I mean, what is God? Is he there to help you succeed in life? I even remember hearing this prayer of a Christian father. He told me that he, he, he prayed this, this, this prayer with his kids. They were house hunting. And, and the prayers he would pray with his kids each night was like this. Dear God, help us find a house, but one with a swimming pool. He did end up getting one, but what does that prayer reflect? It does show something of the heart, doesn't it? Now, it's not that God is not concerned for those things. God is concerned for our studies, our work, our life, whatever. God is concerned even the little things. I mean, we've been told in the Bible that, that God has all the hairs on our head numbered. God knows it all. That becomes easier for God as you get old like me, you lose more. But God knows even those little things. So they're not unimportant. But let me ask you, do those type of prayers. We hear it all the time when exam time comes. That's all we pray about. When, when job in, That's all we pray about. But do those prayers reflect more of the child or more of the rich man? What do you think? This is what I think. In all honesty, if that is all you pray, if that is the nature of all your prayers, that is a worldly prayer. Idolatry has been flushed out there. You see, it's such a first world, white collar, eastern suburb prayer, as gently as I can say that. But it reveals a heart problem, doesn't it? 
We're just like the rich man. It reveals a heart problem. So what if you don't do well? So what if you don't get the marks you want? So what if you don't get the job you want? Do you miss out on the kingdom of God? Well, maybe it does. Because you're showing you are like the rich man. Maybe it does. Because it's showing you are no different to the rich man. Holding on to the things of this world. Not letting go and saying it's for the glory of God. Wealth and success can ensnare and entrap and keep you out of the kingdom of God, just as it did that rich man. I mean, just think about the, the letters of the apostles. I mean, I never hear the apostle Paul pray, Dear Heavenly Father, please help me in my tent-making business. Perhaps grant me success in, in selling more tents. Grant me more customers tomorrow, please. Help me to enjoy my work. Heavenly Father, help me to feel fulfillment as I do my job of making tents. Do you hear the Apostle Paul pray such prayers? Well, no, instead you hear these. That you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's the prayer of the Apostle. And how does he pray for himself? That God might help me fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. They are the prayers of the apostle. They are the prayers that reflect the heart of God. Now this is not to say we can't pray about all sorts of things. God is concerned with all of our life. But perhaps, perhaps you might like to try this. When life gets stressful, the assessments due, the exams are coming, the job promotion, the job into, whatever it might be. Perhaps a prayer like this, a prayer that reflects more of the heart of God and less of the heart of the rich man. Dear Heavenly Father, even in times like this, when it's so stressful, the pressure is on to do well, I pray that you will grant me the grace to even during this time make costly decisions for the sake of your kingdom. Even in this time, give me the faith to trust in your good sovereign purposes and help me to never think that seeking my success is the same as seeking your kingdom. Perhaps try a prayer like that. As I get older as a Christian, I've learned to pray from other Christians before me. I hear about how they pray and pray for their children in particular, prayers that reflect their deepest longing of their hearts. I'll share two with you. First, a prayer from Tom Carson for his children. It's written in this memoir of his life. He was a pastor, his son's Don Carson. He was a godly, faithful, humble man, a minister, who served for decades in the churches in French Canada. And his prayer for his children was like this. He prayed that they would love the Lord more than him. That they would love the Lord more than him. And within the last year of his life, before he died, he thanked God that God answered his prayers. That his children did love the Lord more than him. Don Carson, who wrote this, he wrote that down. He said, 
Well, that's not true. Of course, his father loves the Lord more. But what a lasting legacy that will be to leave. That the deepest longing of his father was that the children would love the Lord more. That's what I want to pray for my children. They get their results. I want that. How do you compare? And I pray that for my kids. That as much as I try to love the Lord, that they would love him more. A second prayer I learned, this time from Don Carson himself. This was a prayer he prayed and prays for his children. He himself became a minister, perhaps one of the greatest theologians of our time. His prayer for his children was not that they would have an easy life, was not that they would be comfortable, was not that they would have much, was not that they would achieve and succeed. And I wonder how many of the prayers of the parents here are just like that. It just sounds right, doesn't it? But this was, and this is, what he prays for his children. Prays that they would have enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. That's a prayer I pray for my kids. Not that they will have an easy, smooth sailing life. I pray a prayer like that, that they would have enough hardship that they would learn to depend on God alone, that they would have enough faith so that they would persevere till the end, that they will have enough hope that they will live with, with excited anticipation for the kingdom of God. Compare the prayers. Our prayers, are they flushing out our idolatry? Are they flushing out your idolatry? Are they in fact showing you you're actually on the wrong side of the line? Because your deepest desires are not that of God's. You're just like the rich man. And so where do you stand? Do your prayers, do your heart, does your heart reflect more of the child or the rich man? Now for the rest of you who, who are here probably undecided about this Christian thing, unclear about this Christianity, perhaps you might even acknowledge that you're actually not on the inside, you're on the outside. Well, I want to ask you this question, and that is, what will your future hold? I mean, if you ever are tempted to think this, that when I meet God, God should be pleased with how I have lived. God should be pleased with my good, decent life. God should be pleased with my charity. Well, this story should make clear to you that it is impossible for you on those merits to get into the kingdom of God. And so what does your future hold? Well, you see, it is impossible for man only becomes possible with God but though God has made it possible it was not simple it was costly it was not cheap you see for God to draw a line and to say you are mine for God to do that someone had to go outside the line someone had to go outside the wall someone had to leave God's presence to take your place you see, what happened with Jesus, God's very own son? When he went to Golgotha, that was outside the walls of Jerusalem, the place of the rejected. When he went to Calvary, the place of the dead. 
when God went, God in his son went to the brutal cross outside the protection of his father. He went for you. He went to take your place, to die the death that you deserve so that you can come in, so that God can draw a line around you and say, you are mine. You are part of the kingdom of God. You belong. See, God made it possible, but it was not cheap. It cost him his son. And so what will your future hold if you are undecided? Well, my plea to you, my plea to you is to come to Jesus like a child, dependent, completely dependent on him. Trust entirely in him. Cling tightly onto him so that God will draw a line around you and say, you are mine. I'm going to sing a song soon. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Amen. Let's pray.